We have with us this morning some more guests, and they have been in our country only for a short period of time and have been helping Claude Levitt in the translation of the Old Testament into the trio language. I'm going to ask Claude and, let me see if I can get this right, Muyofa. Now, his wife, uh, Mukuriofa, is not going to be coming up. Claude, would you bring Muyofa up? And uh, they shared with us in the first service how uh, God's Word came to them, and it really is an exciting story, so I'll let them tell you as well. We're happy to be with you this morning, and uh, the names are strange. I... Her face didn't light up when you pronounced it there, so you didn't get it close enough. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of strange names. But you know, we need to get used to them because uh, there's going to be a lot of strange names in heaven. People don't have the names that you and I have, but they still know the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the main name. And this man has come up to help me in translation, and he wants to give you his testimony this morning. My... I want to greet you. I want to say thanks for coming here, for the privilege of being here. Uh, I see you've all awakened this morning and arrived. <laughs> it's good to be with you. I, I look upon you as my brothers and sisters. My sisters, my mothers, and fathers. My mothers and my fathers. I got ahead of them on that one. <laughs> and it's good to be here. I want to tell you about life in my country. I want to tell you how I received the Lord Jesus Christ. I have received him. My village is far away from here. Way down in Brazil. I am a trio. My name is Muyofa. That's what I want to say to you. Now I want to talk to you. I was born on the Brazil side of the mountains from Suriname. Why was I born there? Well, that's where my mother and father lived. <laughs> So that's where I was born. And I grew up there. And when I got bigger, my father, he was my teacher. He told me about the life of the tribe. About what? He told me how to cut my arms and my legs so that I'd shoot straight and be a good hunter. That would make me to shoot straight and to go fast through the jungle. And he told me stories, too. He told me about where life and death came from one day. And he told me other things. He told me how to live by drinking the blood of the turtle uh, and the alligator. And the blood of the, uh, the turtle also to drink that. 
And to take the bone of the Makwi monkey, the small mamazet monkey, and scrape it and put that in some drink and drink that. These uh, animals live a long time, and this was supposed to give us life. It was all so that we would keep from dying, so that we would have life and live. So I did what my father said. I drank the blood of the alligator. I drank the blood of the turtle. I did that so I wouldn't die. He said this. He says, our father, we were alive. We had life at one time, but because our father did not obey, we, death came. Our first father, he wasn't very smart, he says. Uh, Puru he's the one who made the trios. He told him a good story one day. But he didn't listen. And that's why we die, he said. And he told me the story. This is what it was, he said. He says, a tree is going to fall down. But trees are the dying kind. And don't respond to that, he said. And Pudupuruwa told us that if we respond to the tree, we'll die. <coughs> so he came and told our first father this story. He warned him against it. And then he went away. He told him two things first, though. He said, the tree is going to fall, the, the, that which will bring death to us. After you hear it crash on the earth, don't say anything, he said. But later a rock will fall, then you can respond to that. So then he went away. And first, then the tree did fall one day. It fell crash down to the earth. And he said, hey, what's that? He said. And later, a rock fell. It was a rock. But he didn't say anything when the rock fell. Now that's why we're the dying kind, because we're like trees, and they die too. Then Purupuruwa came back and he told him this. Which one did you answer to, he said. We answered the first one, he said. He says, Puh, that means surprise. Oh, you'll die now, he says. You'll be the dying kind from now on out. That's the story my father taught me. And uh, we, uh, uh, because of that, we were always looking for life, how to live. But we didn't meet up with it. 
Why? Because we didn't know who God was. God, He was here amongst He was there amongst us though, but we didn't know Him. God has been from a, from way back, from forever. But we didn't know about it. That's the te- but that's the teachings I got from my father. And he told me about the spirits too. And we trusted the spirits. My, his father was a witch doctor. But they didn't protect us. They didn't keep us from dying. That's how I was. After I got big, I went to <coughs> Brazil. And I knew these stories, at least once my father told me. And I obeyed my father's talk. I did what he said. I didn't forget him. But there were others of our tribe that lived on the Suriname side of the mountains. And uh, we would have contact with one another from time to time. And those people over in Suriname heard about the Lord Jesus and received him. Why did they hear about him? Because Claude went from people like you to tell him. He, came to the, he went to Guyana and from, the, from Guyana and the Waiwai Indians he came to us, the Suriname. There were Waiwais with him too. They didn't know much of our talk, just a little bit in those days. But they tried to tell us about God. The Waiwais could tell us too. Told us how the ground was made. How the water was made. And how the sun was made. And the sky. That's what they told us. And so my tribesmen responded and became Christian. You know Peshaifa. And you know Asongo. And then my older brother they came from the Suriname side of the mountains to my village. They came to where we were, over into Brazil. I was there not knowing uh, about God at that time. I was busy working. I wanted to get a gun. I wanted to get pots. And I wanted a knife. A machete. That's all I was thinking about life in those days. So my older brother and Peshaifa and Asongo came. They first received Jesus. My older brother first and Peshaifa and then later I received Jesus because they told me. They told me about God. They said, God is good. And I saw them. Their life was different. They didn't carry themselves like they used to. They were different. They were changed. 
When we grew up together, we were all bad and mean. We were fierce with one another. And we wanted to kill people. We didn't like people. I knew that, and that's how they were too. But when I saw them this time, they were different. Their life was changed. They were quiet and uh, peaceful. And they came to me. And so I listened to God's word from them. And I saw that they were happy. My, fa- my older brother, he'd been a witch doctor too. And he told me, You know how I was, a bad one, a witch doctor? But I'm not like that anymore. And I said, that's, so, that's how you express surprise. There. So then I came back with them. And then they told me more. Then I met this one here, Claude. I, I didn't know about white people then. I was afraid too at that time. But that's how I was, my young Here is uh, what we hadn't heard before. I want to tell it to you this morning. We had been looking for life. We had done the things our father had told us, but we hadn't met up with it. And we'd done many things so that we could live in order not to die. But now, with God's word, we found it. Why? Because they told it to us. This one, Claude, you people sent to us. And God was kind to us through him. And he brought this word to us. This is what I, fe- I found in John 14:6. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. Like this, Jesus answered, I am the way. And the truth also I am. And the one that gives life also I am. People cannot go to my Father if I am not there. Uh, And that is what it says. And by that you will know the Father. That's the word I heard. I am, I'm obeying that. I believe that today. And that's why I'm here to see you today. You are God's children here. So let's be trusting God very much. Satan tries to tempt us. But when we trust in God, he fixes us good. There are two who test us. Satan tests us here on the earth. And God, he protects us. When we trust him. That's how our God is.
Just that much I want to say to you. Naka. Bit of an unsettling experience last night. Many of you know we have a 16-month-old uh, daughter, too young to uh, take in uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, but uh, didn't prevent my wife from uh, arranging for a babysitter and dragging me to see it last night. <laughs> and uh, the the disturbing thing was that about halfway through the uh, movie, both Debbie and I independently came to the realization that our uh, daughter reminded us a lot of Dopey. <laughs> it's, uh, we're sort of hoping this is just a cute stage she will pass through. But anyway, I'd like to spend the morning with you in uh, the 27th chapter of Acts. Those of you with very good memories will recollect that many moons ago we started a series through the book of Acts. And we got through chapter 26, leaving Paul in prison in Caesarea, which is the Roman headquarters in Palestine. And we just sort of dropped the story at that point. I'm going to reveal a secret to you this morning. I will tell you why we have never finished the book of Acts. That's because Dave Roper got sick of the book of Acts. <laughs> 26 chapters was absolutely all he could handle, so he just dropped it and went on to other things. You know, probably kill me for telling you that, so don't tell him where you heard it. But Anyway, in his absence, I have been nominated to, uh, as Paul Harvey does, to tell you the rest of the story in these next two weeks. Chapter 27 is an adventure on the high seas. If you like a good uh, sea story, as I do, this will capture your attention. One of the movies that I first remember seeing when I was growing up was Swiss Family Robinson. I remember sitting through it three times the first day I saw it because I was so fascinated with this drama and this adventure on the open seas. And that's the sort of story that we have here in, in Acts chapter 27. This is one of the documents that is most useful, by the way, to historians who seek to, to reconstruct the art uh, and the nature of seamanship in the first century because Luke's history here is so accurate. He uses the technical nautical terms throughout his account and it's very precise in terms of his details. I have an idea he probably kept a diary during this entire drama and then when this ordeal was over sat down and put the story to, to paper. Let's read the first eight verses and get the background to the drama which begins to unfold. I will probably trace this whole story with you and then at the tail end of our time go back and seek to draw some lessons out of this. But for the moment, let's just enjoy the story. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adramitian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. And the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. And from there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. 
And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. And when we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off Canidus, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a certain place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, you might be interested in sort of retracing with me the movements of this voyage. It always helps to uh, visualize on a map the geography of these events, so if you have one, it might be worthwhile keeping a finger there as we go through this account. As we open this account, Paul is in prison in Caesarea. He spent two years in prison there. And it was finally decided by Agrippa and Festus that Paul should go to Rome and actually appear before Caesar Nero himself. So along with some other prisoners, Paul was put aboard this ship. Now the other prisoners on this vessel were probably men who had been sentenced to die and were being transported to Rome to face the beasts in the Colosseum. But the centurion, whose name is Julius, knew that Paul was destined to appear before Nero and consequently treated Paul with great uh, deference and great respect and great kindness throughout this entire uh, account. Julius was a member of the Augustan cohort, Luke tells us. Uh, Augustus, or the Augustan cohort, comes from the name Augustus, which was one of the names that the emperors bore. And this means that Julius was probably a hand-picked uh, soldier in the emperor's personal service, responsible and accountable to the emperor, so a man of distinguished military career. Now they picked up a ship that was bound for Adramitia, which was a coastal town on the northwest part of the coast of Asia Minor. If you locate it on your map there, Asia Minor uh, was then what is now Turkey. And this was... Adramidia was located up in the northwest part of that uh, peninsula, that continent. And although that wasn't their final destination, the centurion Julius knew that the ship they would board there would at least get them into the east-west shipping lane so that eventually they could pick up a ship in some port in Asia Minor which would take them on to Rome. Their first stop is at the seaport of Sidon, and there are some believers there who welcome Paul into their homes, and Julius considerately allows Paul to spend some time with them, and they minister to him before they move on. Now, the winds blowing across the Mediterranean at this time of year were westerly, that is, they came from the west, and so it was very difficult to make any headway if you were heading toward Rome. Rome was west of Caesarea, a long ways west, but because of the winds blowing from the west, it was very difficult to make any direct headway toward Rome. So the captain of this vessel moved along the coast, the Mediterranean coast there, in uh, what is now Syria and Lebanon, and then around the uh, lower part of Turkey. They could pick up land breezes that way, and the uh, current near the coast flowed to the west, so that helped move the ship in the direction they wanted to move. And so the captain uh, stayed to the leeward side of the island of Cyprus, that is, between Cyprus and the mainland, because that provided a shelter from this westerly wind, and he was able to make his way around the north and east corner of the island of Cyprus and then move on inshore. And they came to a seaport of Myra, 
in the little province of Lycia, and there the centurion was able to find a, an Alexandrian ship which was headed for Rome. This Alexandrian ship was a freight ship carrying a load of corn and uh, wheat. Nobody in Italy farmed at this point anymore because there was too much uh, competition from uh, foreign imports. And uh, so consequently, Egypt became the grain supplier for Italy. And it was common for ships to ply this trade from uh, Alexandria and make their way to Rome. If you look on your map, you'll see that uh, Rome is in a northwesterly direction. But the ships couldn't make a straight course for Rome because of these winds. So it was very common for them to tack north along the coast and stop at these seaports along the southern coast of Asia Minor. And that's where Julius picks up this ship, which is bound for, for Rome. It's a big ship. We'll find out later 276 persons were aboard this ship, probably 140 feet long or so. And one of the difficulties that they encountered later in the, in the story is that these ships were often equipped with only one large sail, which made it very difficult for them to tack against the wind. And that created the need for some rather complicated maneuvers. When they reached the... Uh, uh, town of Canitis, which if you locate on your map, was at the lower southwest extremity of Asia Minor. It was customary then for ships to try to move in a westerly direction across that open sea. But because the wind was so strong, they couldn't make any headway to the west, so the captain of this uh, Alexandrian ship begins to allow the wind to carry him to the south toward the island of Crete. And they, again, using Crete as a blot for this westerly wind, they duck down on the east and then finally the south side of the island of Crete and reach a place called Fair Havens, a little harbor which bears the same name today. Now, at that point, a decision had to be made, and Luke tells us that story in verses 9 to 20. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, that's a reference to the Day of Atonement, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo on the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain, or probably the owner of the ship, than by what was being said by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing northeast and southeast, and spend the winter there. Probably the first uh, people who desired to spend the winter in Phoenix. They are still with us. And when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had gained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close in shore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called the Eurakilo. It's a combination word meaning northeaster, Greek and Latin combined, strong northeaster. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. And running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. And after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship 
and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor, or probably better, sail, they let down the sail, and so let themselves be driven along. <clears throat> the next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. They had to spend a considerable amount of time in the port town of Fair Havens because of this uh, westerly wind. They weren't able to leave port. And so a decision had to be made. Uh, Luke tells us that this time of year was dangerous for shipping. Generally, sailors at that time considered the time period from the middle of September to the middle of November as extremely dangerous sailing. And past the middle of November, no one ventured onto the high seas. So these men knew that fast, the Day of Atonement, took place on October 5th of this particular year, 59 A.D. Luke tells us that that time had already passed. So this is sometime early in October, which is right in the middle of the most dangerous time to be sailing the Mediterranean. So the members of the ship knew that they were going to have to spend the winter somewhere, just ride out the months of uh, November, December, and January before they would be be able to continue their voyage to Rome. So the question was where they were to spend the winter. They had apparently a ship's council calling the crew members and the passengers together. And Paul offers his counsel at this stage that they ought to stay right where they are. He says if we leave Fair Havens, we will certainly wind up on the rocks and very likely many of us will lose our lives. Now, it seems a little bit presumptuous for Paul to insert his uh, counsel at this point. What does a missionary apostle know about navigation? But you must remember that Paul was very likely the most experienced traveler on this ship. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 that three times in his missionary career he had been shipwrecked. And once, he said, he had spent more than 24 hours adrift in the middle of the uh, open seas. So Paul knew the weather conditions and how suddenly they could shift in the Mediterranean probably better than anyone on board <clears throat> and his wise common sense counsel based on his own experience was that they stay put and not risk the open sea but uh, the sailors the majority it says vetoed that decision uh, Fairhaven was a dinky little harbor town and uh, the sailors were looking for a place that would be a little more fun to spend the winter. So the majority voted to make a move to try to get the ship to Phoenix, which was a harbor about 50 miles down the coastline. And when a moderate, softly blowing south wind came up, which would be just right to enable them to stay close to the shore and reach that harbor for the winter, they felt this was an omen that they ought to start the, uh, the trip to Phoenix. So they cast off, weighed anchor, and cast off from Fair Havens. And the voyage started smoothly, but once they rounded a point there on the southern part of Crete, uh, Luke tells us that a violent northeast wind swept down off the mountains of Crete, which reached a height of up to 7,000 feet, and seized the uh, ship and began to uh, shove it uh, far off course. The, uh, uh, the steersman made for this island of Clauda, which, if you'll notice on your map, is about 23 miles south of Crete, so you can see how far 
just in the space of one day how far off course they'd been blown. And he used the protection of that island to make a little bit of leeway. And Luke tells us that at this point they had to try to hoist the little dinghy into the, into the ship. They didn't carry uh, lifeboats at that time uh, hoisted on the deck, but they actually trailed them behind the ship. And due to the force of the waves, this little uh, lifeboat was beginning to fill with water. And so they figured they'd better hoist it up onto the, the ship itself. Luke uses the first person there. So evidently, Luke, even though he was a land lover, got involved in hoisting that little dinghy up by hand. They got all the passengers out on deck and had them heaving to hoist this little uh, sailboat or this little rowboat up into the, uh, into the main deck. But the wind uh, continued, got even stronger, and so the captain was forced to take some fairly drastic measures to try to save the ship. First thing they did in verse 17 is they put uh, cables under the ship. These were uh, hawsers that they would place under the ship at several different uh, points, and then they would use winches to cinch them tight so that the ship was just like a little package all tied up with string, and this was to keep the timbers from being uh, uh, just torn apart by the force of the waves. Uh, that uh, helped some, but he realized the need to take even further steps, so they dropped the main sail. So they were no longer had their sails up, but the wind now was just driving the ship. They dropped all their sails, had probably used the steering paddles to turn that ship broadside to the wind. And so the wind coming from the northeast was just beginning to shove this ship gradually off course through the middle of the Mediterranean. And they were afraid that they would run aground on uh, the uh, shore of Sirtis. If you look on your map, you'll notice that that's on the northern coast of Africa near uh, the town of Cyrene. And many ships have gone uh, adrift on that. They're shifting uh, sandbars and beaches there, no way to plot these, and so sailors just avoided them as much as they could. And underwater archaeologists have uncovered on those very shores a number of uh, hulls of remaining ships. And the captain, afraid that they were going to wind up beached on the coast of North Africa, began to throw the cargo overboard. So the very valuable cargo of wheat and grain that they were carrying, they began to chuck out of the holes into the open sea, trying to lighten the ship so that it would ride as high in the water as possible. And yet it, uh, Luke tells us that the storm got even worse, and so finally on the third day out of Fairhaven, they were forced to start throwing over the, the ship's gear. They probably took furniture and bedding and tables and cooking utensils and began to throw everything that wasn't absolutely indispensable for the voyage overseas into the end of the ocean. But the storm got even worse. Luke tells us that they went for many days, probably 10 or 11 days, without even seeing the sun or the stars. Now, at this stage, they had no sextants or compasses, so they had absolutely no idea where in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean they were. The sky was black 24 hours a day for a period of 10 days. And Luke tells us that all of them on board the ship began to abandon hope that they would ever be saved, and evidently Paul is included in that, uh, in that description. So things have reached a pretty desperate uh, condition at this point. And at last, the uh, sailors are willing to listen to, uh, to Paul. And he has a word for them in verses 21 to 26. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice. 
I couldn't resist the little I told you so there. <laughs> and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. And yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. Evidently, in their anxiety and their seasickness, their appetite had pretty much disappeared, which naturally weakened them physically for the rigors of the voyage. But uh, Paul stands up in the midst of the assembled crew and passengers and says that the preceding night that an angel of the God that he served had appeared to him and given him a message of hope. And the message was that just as God had promised Paul, he would stand personally to appear before uh, uh, Caesar Nero. And uh, furthermore, Paul evidently had requested that God would spare the lives of the other 275 passengers, and God said, yes, for your sake, Paul, I will do that. So this is the word that he communicates to the assembled uh, crew and passengers, that not a single soul will perish. God has granted, uh, for my sake, the lives of all of you. If you look back in verse 10, you'll remember that Paul predicted that there would be a loss of life just from his common sense experience. But now, based on the revelation the angel had given him, he realized that although the ship would be lost, none of the passengers would lose their lives. But he says we must run the ground on a certain island, that things were going to get worse before they got better. Their actions had set into, uh, into effect a chain of events, and God was not going to suspend the consequences of their actions. They were going to reap some of the full effects of the consequences of their own actions. But Paul says God will limit the damage that will be done. So with that, as a word of encouragement, Luke's account continues in verse 27. When the fourteenth night, that's the fourteenth night out of Fair Havens, when they've been adrift in this storm, when the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. And they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. That's what I would do. And as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. And with that as incentive, the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. And until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, or literally salvation. For not a hair from the head of any of you shall perish. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. 
And all of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. And all of us in the ship were 276 persons. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. They had drifted probably 35 to 40 miles a day, and after two weeks adrift on the open Mediterranean, they had drifted to the westward about 500 miles. And uh, at midnight on the 14th night, the sailors who were standing watch heard the pounding of the surf into a nearby beach, and afraid that in the dark they would run aground, they dropped four anchors off of the stern to secure the boat so it would still be facing to the northwest, being pushed by the wind but held in place by these anchors. And uh, they just hoped that uh, daybreak would come before long. Luke tells us that some of the sailors decided in the uh, cover of darkness to try to get away and uh, told the captain they were just going to drop some anchors off the front of the ship but in reality, we're going to lower the ship, in, the little boat, into the ocean and try to make their getaway. And Paul warns the centurion that unless these men were kept in the ship, they themselves would lose their lives, evidently feeling that they would need every able-bodied uh, man for the uh, events of the following day. And so just as these sailors were about to hop into this little boat, uh, the centurion had some of his soldiers hack the uh, cables into, and the ship fell into the surf. Paul again encourages them to uh, take some food. They had been physically weakened, and he knew that the rigors of the day to come would require physical strength, so he challenges them to take some food and sets the pattern for them by himself partaking of a meal. And after everyone had eaten enough, they just chucked the rest of the food supply overboard. So now there was nothing left on the ship except the people themselves. Verse 39, when day came... They could not recognize the land, but they did observe a certain bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders, or the steering paddles, and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met... They ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, that none of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks, and others on various things from the ship. And thus it happened that they were all brought safely to land. Turns out that this was the island of Malta, and this bay that they observed in the morning is to this very day called St. Paul's Bay. Recognizing the bay and what seemed to be a suitable place to just uh, beach the ship, they were no longer concerned about trying to save the ship, just concerned about getting to land with the least damage possible. They slipped the anchors, just let them fall into the sea. They loosed the uh, ropes which had been tying the steering paddles into place. These were giant steering paddles that came out the stern, and those would be secured while the ship was at anchor, but they wanted to use these to try to steer the ship to the point on the beach they were aiming for. And then they raised a small foresail to help give them some further control over the direction. 
and they let her rip. But they could not see that there was a, a sandbar that was a submerged. A ship like this would probably draw 25 to 30 feet of water. And there was a sandbar that they could not see, which was formed by two cross currents. And instead of making it to the beach, the ship plowed into the sandbar and stuck nose first into the sandbar. And the prow was wedged into the sandbar, immovable, but the waves kept crashing into the rear of the ship and began to break it into pieces. Now, the uh, soldiers who were in charge of these prisoners were afraid that some of them might get away. And under Roman law, if a guard allowed a prisoner to escape, then he himself had to pay the penalty that the prisoner was destined for. So these men naturally were concerned for their own safety and were prepared to kill every prisoner they could find. Centurion again intervened uh, because of his desire to protect Paul and the prisoners were saved. And so the centurion insists that everybody who could swim jump overboard and get to land best they could. And then those that couldn't were instructed to grab uh, loose pieces of timber and planking and just hang on for dear life and throw themselves into the surf and allow the waves to carry them to the beach. And miraculously, just as God had promised, every one of the 276 people made it safer to the beach. Well, that's an interesting story, uh, at least I think, fascinating story to me. Uh, but it leaves us with the question, what can we learn from all of this? Interesting as the story is, what practical lessons are there for us? Well, I would suggest that Paul's actions in this uh, chapter give us some, uh, some, a fruitful example to imitate. Particularly when we uh, are seeking to respond to someone who is considering making some potentially fateful and fatal decisions. This was a situation Paul was in, and his very life was at stake in, in this event. And he saw that the, these men were prepared to make a decision that he knew was risky and would almost certainly be accompanied by some disastrous consequences. Now, oftentimes we're in that situation where friends or uh, family members, people that we know in the, in the body, are considering actions which either we know to be unwise, perhaps uh, financially or job-wise, or we know to be unrighteous because they, they violate clear commands of Scripture. I think our responsibility in that case is to do just what Paul did, that is to express our concern to the individual that we feel is about to make this disastrous decision uh, and explain to them as clearly as we can what we feel the consequences of their action will be. This is a tack I often follow in, in counseling men and women who may be considering divorce to challenge them to consider the consequences if they carry through in terms of their own guilt and their own sorrow terms of the heartache that this will produce for the spouse, in terms of the damage this will do to the children, to be aware fully of the consequences of their action. But in Paul's case, as often happens in our case, our counsel are, uh, is not taken, it's ignored. How should we respond then? Well, I suggest again we imitate Paul's example, and that is to, to keep silent. Once they have chosen the course of action, there's no use in pestering and uh, nagging and trying to coerce a proper course of action. This time, it's just time to back off and allow the, uh, the effect of their actions to take place, allow them to reap the consequences of their own behavior. Just as the father in the story of the prodigal son was willing to let his son go, even though he knew that what his son was going to do was going to involve disaster, he was willing to take his hands off and to let him go. 
I think we need to be aware, as Paul found out, that when we make these decisions to allow people to pursue a course of action we know is hurtful to them, that it often affects us. As, as their lives go down the drain, they may threaten to take us with them. And we need to imitate Paul's example again of being willing to suffer those consequences without becoming bitter, without becoming resentful, without complaining bitterly to others about the sort of treatment that we are receiving. Uh, but to be willing to imitate the example of Christ in suffering these consequences in order that eventually healing may take place. And I think the third thing we need to do is to be around to pick up the pieces when they finally crash and burn. It's right at that point that we're tempted to give them a tongue lashing and tell them we hope they've learned their lesson for good. But it's right at that point that we need to be available to help to dust them off, to pick them up, to first of all find a word of courage and sustenance and strength from God for ourselves, as Paul did, and then find from God a word of encouragement and strength for others. And we may need to be prepared, as Paul was, to give this sort of encouragement more than once. People often get themselves into a, a pretty horrible fix and need to be encouraged repeatedly in order to, to find hope and courage to face the consequences of their own actions. I think that's one lesson we can learn. Two other quick ones. One is that God uh, protected Paul until his ministry was complete. That there wasn't anything that the unrighteousness or the, the lack of wisdom or adverse circumstances could do to keep Paul from fulfilling the course that God had appointed for him. And the same is true for us. There is no one who by their lack of wisdom or lack of righteousness, there is no set of circumstances that will keep us from making the mark on the kingdom of God that God has called us to make. And then last, I think we see in Paul an example of, a, of how a Christian can behave in crisis at a time when... Uh, Everything and everyone else was falling apart and collapsing around him. Paul, because of the strength he found in God, was able to stand tall to walk as a man among men and, and to be the man who provided the hope and the comfort and the encouragement for a ship full of desperate people. And there's the same uh, need for that sort of poised humanity in, in our uh, lives today, in our homes, in our shops, in our offices, in our neighborhoods. Uh, to be people who stand tall when, uh, when circumstances are falling apart around us and are able to find in God a courage and a bravery and, and a peace that we then can transmit to others. Let's uh, stand and be dismissed with prayer. Lord, we're grateful for the example that you give us of Paul in this passage, his uh, refusal to become petty and punitive when his counsel was ignored with disastrous results. Give us the grace to uh, not return evil for evil in those circumstances, but to be prepared to uh, pick people up who have uh, uh, made uh, disastrous mistakes in life and to be a source of encouragement and courage to them. Help us, too, to be people who stand tall in crisis, who are able to find in you a calm and a peace and a poise that will enable us to be a source of courage and, and, and comfort to others. We thank you for the provision of Jesus and his life in us to this end. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.